say it's good to be here this morning and certainly good to see the presence of all that are here. It's been mentioned if you're a visitor, we appreciate you being here. We're glad that you're here and we want you to know that you're welcome every time that you have an opportunity to be with us. This morning, I want to talk just a little bit about the fullness uh, of time. Now then, I will make a note that all of my scriptures are King James. That's the one L in fullness. Now, any other misspellings may be mine, but I will also blame them on King James. So, This passage of scripture has been of interest to me. As we read in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And I want to take particular note of a couple of phrases in this passage. One is when the fullness of time was come. When the fullness of time, in other words, when God's plan was ready, when he chose the correct time, he sent his son to the world to die and to show us an example and to free us from the bondage of our sin and the bondage of the law to the children of Israel. And then we're going to look at the fact that he was made of a woman. He was in physical form. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, there are sometimes people will make statements like, well, Jesus was an ancient figure and he lived in a different time. And therefore, his life and his teachings really don't apply to our society today. That those are antiquated ideas. And my, I submit to you this morning that his ideas and his teachings are valid today, even in our society. I hear a lot of times people talk about how dark our world has become with all of the new laws that are passed on abortion and the ability to kill children when they're born and all of the other immoral acts are now legal and, and we're oppressed if we speak against those things. Those things are now the norm in our society and we go, well, the world is just getting worse and worse and, and I, I want to tell you this morning that the world is not getting worse. The world has always been worse. That's why Jesus came. Because the world was dark. And so his teachings and his life example for us are applicable today. We can live by his examples and we can learn from him. In the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, it says, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be remembrance of the things that are come with those that should come after now then, we read this verse and we go, well, there's all kind of new things in the world. I use my iPhone, for example. Somebody says, well, that's new. Well, I submit this is not a new one. This was an iPhone 6. This is antiquated. <laughs> and I, I'm refusing to buy any new ones. But uh, this is antiquated. Well, it was new. Well, people have already forgot about it. I want you to look at a picture. How many of you remember this one? This is the greatest invention 
that was made. This is the first telephone. Alexander Graham Bell was credited with inventing the telephone and patenting it. And this, as he said, is the greatest invention in the world. But we forgot about it. We look at that and go, there is no way. You can't put it in your pocket. You can't put that in your pocket. How many of us remember a, a push-button phone that was hanging on the wall? I remember when Dee and I were dating, and I would sit in the kitchen at my home, and I would have to sit in, the middle, in, the, in this room and talk to her on a phone that was connected to the wall. Where my parents could hear what I was saying. When we bought accessories for that phone, it was a 10-foot curly cord that we connected to the handset so we could stretch across the room. I remember my grandmother having a, it was a, a dark, black, hard, plastic phone. It was heavy, and it had a dial on it. And you dialed the numbers. And we thought speed dialing was to see how fast you could make that thing go to get the number dialed. Many of us don't remember the crank phones that hang on the wall. We forgot those things. And that's what Ecclesiastes says. There's no new, new thing under the sun. Those things that which were are, 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 the, are forgotten by those that come after them. And tomorrow, when these children grow up, they're going to forget what an iPhone 6 is. They'll go, that is old. I remember walking into a, a, a Southwestern Bell telephone company when we were kind of into the cell phones that you had to pull the antenna up on. And I had this phone, and I was kind of cheap, so I just kept that phone forever and ever and ever. And one day, the battery on the back warped, and it wouldn't work anymore. And I said, I'll go to the store and get one. And I walked in and held up the phone, and the guy just immediately said... We don't make those anymore. They're old. And we think all of this is new and there's new inventions. And I want to tell you something. This is not new. What this really is, is a mode of communication. That's what this is. We call it a telephone. But communication has existed since the beginning of time. And this is simply a different mode of communication. Someone says, well, computers are new. Well, the mechanism is new, but what they do is not new. We type on a computer. People have been writing for, for generations and for centuries. We calculate math. You know, I put in a spreadsheet and we calculate math. People have been doing math a long time before computers were ever made. Really, computer is just a different way of doing the same thing that's always been. And we forget that. We talk about how people years ago, I just don't know how they did those things. I remember asking my grandmother one time. We were riding around in a 68 Pontiac Catalina. And she had the clear plastic on the seats that had almost like the little bubble snap paper. And it was covering the seats, so no, nothing to get on those seats. And I remember riding down the road, and it was hot. And I, I said, well, how did you get along with no air conditioner? <laughs> it didn't have an air conditioner. 
And my back would stick to the seat as a little kid. And I just, I don't know how people did it. Well, people have been living without air conditioner longer than air conditioner has been invented. And we forget those things. And when we talk about the Bible and we talk about the principles of Jesus Christ and his life and his teachings, we think, well, those are antiquated. They won't apply today. But those principles, the same principles apply today just like they did then. Because there's nothing new with man. The same greed that man has existed in the beginning. The same love for a person existed in the beginning. You see, all of our human emotions and our reactions are the same throughout time. And so when Jesus talks to us about loving our neighbor, those principles apply today. When he talks about marriage, those principles apply today because the same Human reaction and interaction is the same. And so when we look at Jesus, let's not think that, well, he's antiquated and his life doesn't apply today. What we're going to look at is a little bit of how the world was during the time of Jesus and how he existed as a human being to understand that His life does apply to us today. His teachings do apply to us today. In Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast, and in the borders of Zabulon and Nephilim, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Now, as we get a description of the land that Jesus came to, we can understand that he came to both the Jew and the Gentile. He talks about the borders of Zabulon and Nephilim, and those were two tribes of Israel. They represent God's people. And he came and dwelt on their borders in the uh, Sea of Galilee of the Gentiles. So he existed when he came to this world in between both Jew and Gentile, which is really a fascinating fact to me that when he came, he just wasn't for the Jews. He came for all mankind, and he dwelt in a land that was between both Jew and Gentile. In this time period that Jesus came, the land of Israel, because of their rebellion to God, had been ruled by Babylon, had been ruled by the Medes and the Persians, had been ruled by the Greeks, and now was under the rule of the Roman Empire. Because the children of Israel had rebelled against God time and time again. And so the time period of Jesus, there were Gentiles and Jews all living together in this region. And Jesus came in to this region between both the Jew and the Gentile. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, it says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh... We're also called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. 
That at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometime far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And so we have the Jews that lived in a land that were now oppressed by a Roman, a Roman people or Gentile people. And here it says that those Gentile people were without hope and far from God. And so the world was in darkness. And in the fullness of time, the time appointed by God through prophecy, through his will to bring redemption to man, He came into a world of darkness. Someone says, well, it couldn't have been as dark as it is today. It was probably a darker world than what you and I have seen. In the sense that we haven't seen the atrocities that were in the world during that time. Specifically by the Roman Empire. But the world was dark. And today we think the world is getting darker. It's not getting darker. It's always been dark. And that's why Jesus had to come to bring light into darkness. Now then, our society that's closest to us may be changing from what we know or what we've seen in our lifetime. But it fluctuates and and it's going back to that same darkness that has always existed in the world. The reason that Jesus needed to come. For example, we're into tax season. We're fixing to get there. And my nerves are already starting to get uh, on end. This I hate this season more than anything. Mainly, mainly because it's so much trouble to get all that stuff together and to figure that I hate math. And so we complain about having to pay taxes. We complain about income tax. We complain about property tax. We complain about sales tax. We complain because all of the politicians going, we're going to raise the tax. We go to the gas pump and we look on the label and there's 23 cents tax, federal tax on the gas. We're taxed to death. And we go, I hate taxes. We live in a world that's too burdensome. Well, Jesus lived in a world that was burdened by taxes also. And their system of collecting taxes weren't as pleasant as our system of collecting taxes. They had people who would try to extract as much as they could so that they could forward some taxes to the Roman government and keep what was left over. And so it was very common for people to really extract and uh, express extra money out of people and be cruel to it. And Jesus lived in a time where they did this. And instead of complaining about the taxes that he had to pay, he converted the taxpayer or the tax collector. Look in Luke 5, verse 27. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of customs. And he said unto him, follow me. You see, Jesus' concern wasn't how much taxes he had to pay. His concern was the soul of that person and what he could do using that man in his kingdom. You see, Jesus was forward thinking on the kingdom. Because the truth is, all of the money, the taxes that we pay, all of the things that we value in, in far as money, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be burned up. 
It's just a temporary use thing that we can get through life on. Jesus also had a teaching when his, uh, the Jews tried to trick him. The Jews thought, well, you know, if I pay this money to the government, I'm giving tribute to Caesar. In other words, I'm honoring this cruel man, Caesar. And he uses this money to go out and to, to put Christians in the, the games and kill them for, for sport. And we don't want to support that. And so they tempted Jesus. Well, if we pay this, that's giving him tribute. That's supporting Caesar. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 17. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt you me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought him a penny and said unto him, or unto them, Whose is the image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God. Now I want us to look at that coin. Jesus said, whose picture is on there? Whose image is on there? They said, Caesar's. Whose superscription or writing the name? And they said, Caesar's. He said, well, it belongs to Caesar then. It's not yours. You know, if I lose my wallet and somebody picks that up, and I say, well, that's my wallet, and they'll say, prove it. And I'll say, well, if you look on the inside, it'll have a, a car that has my name and it has my picture. It's mine. It belongs to me. And Jesus said, this money doesn't belong to anybody but Caesar's. So you give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Now, what was Jesus' concern? Wasn't the money. Wasn't the paying the taxes. He said, you give unto God what's God's. You know, as a Christian, we wear his name, the name of Christ. We wear his name. We're supposed to have the image of Christ stamped on our hearts. And when people see us, they see the glory of Christ reflected in us. We wear his image. That means we belong to God. And Jesus said, you need to be giving yourself to God. That's your concern, not the money. It belongs to Caesar. It's temporary. It's his already. It's got his name on it. It's got his picture on it. And so you give it to him. But you give to God what's God's. And I'm going to tell you something. If we worried as much about giving what God, what belongs to God, to God, more than we worried about giving to the government what's theirs, just think how big the kingdom would be. The kingdom of Christ. If we dedicated ourselves, if we worried as much for the first four months of the year about Christ's kingdom and not about paying the kingdom of the United States, we'd be better off. We'd influence more people. You see, the world that Jesus lived in was just as cruel, was just as bad, had all the problems that we have today. And we think our time is, is bad. This world that Jesus lived in was multicultural. It had many different languages. You know, I'm trying to learn a little Spanish. I downloaded a, 
a little app on my phone and occasionally I get it out and I, be, I try to take a few lessons and pronounce a few words and, and then my iPhone tells me I'm spending too much FaceTime on, <laughs> on the phone and so I feel guilty so I don't do it and, and we learn, we try to learn languages. We have a, a nation that's full of different languages. Well, the world that Jesus lived in was the same. It had many languages. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter stood and defended the other 11 apostles that were preaching the gospel, it talked about the people that were there. In verse 4, it says, They were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. And I want you to know when it talks about tongues in the Bible, it's not some gibberish. It's not some language that cannot be understood. It Tongues mean language. And so there were people, uh, these the apostles began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance or the ability to do. And it says, there dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. There were people from all over the world there. And they began to speak with these other languages. Now notice what it says. Now when the, they noise, this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and they were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. They heard in their own language. Here were the apostles speaking in these tongues. Well, they were different languages. And the people that were listening heard that in their own language. Because what's important is the understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, how are they going to do that? When there are so many different languages, he gave them the ability to speak those languages in tongues. And they could go into another country and they could speak that language. I'm going to tell you. If they sent me to Mexico and said, we need you to start a church there or preach the gospel there, I don't have the ability. I'm going to have to have an interpreter because I can't speak Spanish. I've been to Nigeria. I can't speak Ibu. I can't speak Ethic. And so when I went to Nigeria, I had to have someone that could speak that language because the importance is the understanding of the will of God. And in the time of Jesus, that was the same problem. There were people from all over the world, and Jesus wanted people to know the gospel. They wanted the world to know who he was. Even at his death, they posted a sign above his cross, and its superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. You ever wondered why there were three languages? You know, if I'm going to write something, I'm just going to kind of scribble it out there because of the language I know that's common to the people I'm around. And I'm going to write that out. Now, if I want people to have difficulty, I might write in cursive. <laughs> I'm writing my diary in cursive because I don't want my kids to understand what I'm writing. <laughs> But you write out what you know. Well, notice there were three languages. There were three languages. Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Well, after centuries of being under the Greek control in the world, most people spoke Greek. It was common. The New Testament that we have today, the original language it was written in was Greek. 
That's why we go to the Greek text or the Greek concordances to look up what the meanings of the original words were because it was originally in Greek. That was the common language of the world in that time period. The the Latin language was the, the language of the Roman Empire. Italy. It was Latin. They controlled the world at the time. But it was also written in Hebrew. Because that was the language of the Jews. And God wanted everyone to know that Jesus is the king. There was no mistaking who this was hanging on the cross. People that walked by couldn't say, well, I don't understand what that sign means. Because everyone knew. If you spoke Greek, you knew. If you spoke Latin, you knew. If you were a Hebrew, you knew that this, Jesus, was the king of the Jews. And so the world that Jesus lived in was just like our world today. We have many languages, many people from all over the world. In this country, we may work with people that speak different languages. And that we need understanding. And Jesus came in a time where there was an ability to understand. And God provided that. And so when we think about how antiquated Jesus may be really... There was no difference in his society and our society. We may think that based upon the few years that we've lived and we see changes. I, you know, I've, I've lived 57, almost 57 years and I've seen a lot of changes. And I go, well, the world's just getting worse. Well, it's changed from the time I was young. But it's not getting worse. It's always been worse. It's always been dark. And Jesus came to bring light into the world. And people who follow his teachings and his will walk in that light. And the further we get away from Jesus, the darker things seem because it goes back to that darkness that has been in the world since the beginning. In Galatians 4, it says that he was born of a woman. And what this tells us was that he experienced the body of flesh. So when we have pain in our life, physical pain, when we have that mental anguish in our life, and then one day we stand before God and we say, God, you just don't understand how it felt. We have a God that does because he experienced it. He had flesh and blood. He had the mind of a human man. And it says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glories of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. This tells us the word that was in the beginning with God, that was God, was made flesh. He took upon himself a body of a human being. And so he could, he could feel that pain. He could feel the anguish. He could experience what you experience in life. A cold. Perhaps the flu. Maybe he stubbed his toe in the, in the darkness like I did last night. Jesus felt what we as humans feel. We have a a government today that we say, well, today there's legislations where children can be aborted up to the time of birth. And our government is now saying that even after that child is born into the world, that it can lay there on a table 
until a decision is made to do something with that baby. We think the world has just gotten dark. Well, it was no different in Jesus' day. It says in Matthew 2, verse 1, And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came a wise man from the east to Jerusalem. These wise men came, and King Herod inquired about this, this baby named Jesus, of these wise men. Now notice King Herod, or Herod was king at the time. In Matthew 2, verse 13, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. This little baby, Herod, was going to kill him. You know why Herod was going to do that? For selfish reasons. Because this little baby threatened to get in his way. They were calling Jesus the new king. And Herod didn't want him to take his throne. And for selfish reasons, Herod was going to kill this baby Jesus. When he couldn't find him. In Matthew 2 verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. When King Herod could not find this Jesus, he decided, I'll just kill them all. I'll slaughter all the babies. I'm going to tell you something. It was illegal. Wasn't right. But it was legal. Because Herod was the king. And he made the rules. The world has not gotten darker. The world has always been dark. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus had troubled birth. But Jesus expresses to us the teachings of how valuable children are. Matthew 19, verse 14. Jesus said, Suffer little children, forbid them not to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he looked at the innocence of these children and he said, This is the kind of attitude that the kingdom of heaven is made of. These children sought Jesus. The disciples didn't think Jesus needed to be bothered with these children. And they said, get away, go away. And Jesus said, let them come to me. They're precious. They're a gift from God. God expects us to raise our children in his teachings and in his love. And Jesus showed us that in his teaching. In simple statements that he gave. He even talked to us about caring for our children. He says, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly or your father, which is in heaven, give good gifts to them that ask? And he shows us that the relationship of God, our father, to us is the relationship we need with our children. That we provide for them 
We feed them and we clothe them and we teach them good things. And he said, if you think you're doing a good job as a parent, just think how good God is to you. But you know, Jesus also knew that children can be a little bit obnoxious. <laughs> we think that sometimes our children get a little bit out of hand. And Jesus used that and compared them to the, the people that were in uh, the, the Jews. In Matthew 11, verse 16, it says, Whereunto shall I liken this generation? And he's talking about adults. He said, how am I going to compare them? He said, I'm going to compare them to children sitting in the markets and calling to their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. You know, children can be a little mocking at some time. They go, well, you know, you didn't do this. Or they can stand on the corner and mock people. And Jesus compared adults to children. And so Jesus understood children. He understood adults too. But Jesus also understood that children need to be in subjection to their parents. When Jesus was lost in Jerusalem and his parents couldn't find him, and they came to seek him. And it says, and he said unto them, how is it that you sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spoke unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now this is an amazing verse to me. This verse just kind of blows my mind. Because I know who Jesus is. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the Word that spoke and created all things. And now He embodied this flesh. And as a child, He was subject to His parents. The God of heaven submitted to His authority in this world. That, to me, is amazing. And through that action, he teaches us that children are subject to their parents. They need to obey their parents. And that very teaching he gave. Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And we say, well, as a child... Well, Jesus just don't understand what it means to submit to my parents. <laughs> I remember being a kid. I remember rebelling against my parents, or at least for a few times. But Jesus teaches us we're to submit to our parents. We're to obey our parents. And so when we go, well, Lord, you just don't understand... He can say, yes, I do. I was there. As a child, the God of heaven can say, I submitted to my parents because this is right in the Lord. And Jesus teaches that. And his teachings are just as applicable today as they were in the day that Jesus walked the earth. Jesus was educated 
Doesn't mean he had a master's or a doctorate degree, but he was an educated person. It was very common among the Jews for education, for learning. They, they wanted their children to learn. And so we send our children to school. And I know our children go, well, I just don't want to go to school today. Jesus learned. He was educated. He was required to do that. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now, Jesus could read. But it said this was his custom. It's something that he had been taught to do. And he had done all of his life. He had learned to read. He went to school. The Jews taught their children, and especially male children, they start them early. At about age seven, they were learning the Torah, the law of Moses. Age 13, they were required to show that they could quote that, or at least a lot of the law, that they had it in their mind. So they were educated. Jesus was educated. He learned to trade. Matter of fact, when they questioned about who Jesus was, the Jews, they looked at him in Matthew 13 and they said, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is, is not his mother Mary called Mary? His brother, brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? They looked at Jesus and they said, This is the carpenter's son. He had learned to trade. He probably worked side by side with Joseph. In the carpentry industry. And so when they looked at Jesus, they said, carpenter, son. He learned to work with his hands. It's important for us to work. And so when Jesus, through his teachings and the, the writing of the apostles, say that we must work with our hands, it's God expects us to work and provide for our families. Jesus was no different in his day. Jesus sanctified marriage. Someone says, well, he didn't live in a society where, you know, people just want to shack up and people just want to live together in fornication and that all the immoral, sinful acts are okayed by law. He didn't live in that. Yes, he did. He lived in a time where the Jews... And you can look in Matthew 5 and Matthew 9. The Jews questioned Jesus. They said, can we put away our wives for every cause? And Jesus said, no. It wasn't the way it was in the beginning. And you know what their question was? Or their statement? Then it's not good for a man to marry. If I can't just put her away, I might as well not get married. You see, they had a culture of dealing treacherously with their wives. And that God rebuked them for that in the Old Testament. They would marry these women and they would take their, their dowry, their money. And then because they found a flaw in their wife, they would send her out and not give her a writing of divorcement. So she's in the street. She's not married or she's not divorced. She's living in the street, and if she goes and moves in with someone else or marries another man, she's a, an adulteress. It was kind of holding the women hostage is what it was. 
And they'd go marry another wife because they put this one out. They would take her money. And you know, if there was a flaw, she burnt the biscuits or she just a little gripey that day. Well, they would send her out. And all the while, they're keeping the dowry. Because you see, if there was a lawful reason to let her go, they had to give the dowry back to the father. So they were dealing treacherously with their wives. And this was the practice of the Jews. They lived in a day of corrupt marriage practices. The Gentiles, they, you know, marriage wasn't a big deal to them. They had temples to Diana where there were temple prostitutes. And it was considered in society of that day that it was okay to go in there and do worship to this goddess by fornication. Now then, the society of the day of Jesus was dark. But Jesus taught about marriage. And he said in Mark chapter 10, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. What God, what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So he sanctified marriage. He said marriage is good. It's when two people are joined together. That joined together is cleave there. The word cleave, we talk about cleaving together or sticking together. is the literal transformation of the word stick. And they stick together because they have made a commitment. A commitment to do that. A vow. I will, I will marry you. I will take care of you. We will be one. One unit. And you know people don't want to do that today. People say, well, we're together, and, we, and we, we have a relationship, but do you have commitment? Do you have commitment? A lot of people live together. The reason they live together is because they don't want to commit. They don't want to commit. And we can tell that because, you know, they'll say, well, we're just going to try it out. And if it doesn't work, well, one, I'm going to leave. That tells me you've already in your mind committed to leave. You're not committed to staying. And that's the difference in a marriage and just shacking up with fornication. I'm committed to stay. I'm committed through thick and thin, through, through good or bad. Through sickness and health, I'm committed to stay in this relationship. That's marriage. When I'm not committed, I go, I don't want to make that commitment. Because if something's bad, I'm I'm out of here. Because we have no commitment. Jesus sanctified marriage. He was invited to a wedding in John 2. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. That's important to note. He was called. He was invited. And Jesus went. If it was an ungodly or uh, ungodly activity, Jesus would not have gone. He was called and Jesus went and he blessed that wedding. He even made water, uh, wine out of water at that, at that wedding. In celebration. Notice what it, his teachings, his words say in Hebrews 
chapter 13, marriage is honorable in all. And the bad, undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. This opposes two things, marriage and everything outside of marriage. Marriage is honorable. In a time when people were divorcing or putting away their wives, in a time where the Gentiles were living in fornication, Jesus said marriage is honorable. Is it any different today? It's not. Today, marriage, the commitment is honorable. Fornicators and whoremongers, God will judge. You know what? Something else that's the same today is death. People died in the day of Jesus. And people die today. Every one of us knows someone that has passed from this life. Whether it's our grandparents, our husband and wife, our children, our cousins, aunts and uncles. You don't have to go back very many years in your tree your family tree, and you'll realize that death is poured out upon all mankind. There is no one living today that was living in the time of Jesus. And death covers all of us. And Jesus came into a world where death reigned. To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide their feet in the way of peace. They lived in the shadow of death. When you have a shadow, it's a dark place. Something is blocking the light and there's a dark place. In the summertime, we get in that shadow to cool off a little bit if we're outside. But Jesus describes the world as this Our death is this shadow of death. It is a dark cloud that hangs over every one of us every day. And we live in that shadow. We read Psalms 23 and it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's not a funeral passage. That's a life passage. Every day you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It hangs over you. It is a darkness that is there. And Jesus came to bring light to that darkness. He says, you don't have to live in that darkness anymore. That darkness that hangs over us and we're afraid because one day we're going to die. In Hebrews 2, it describes it this way. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He came into the physical body. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to this bondage. We're under the bondage of death as human beings. We're going to all die. But Jesus said, I can free you from that bondage. I came to destroy the stranglehold the the devil had. He brought death to the world. Now Jesus said, I've come. And through my death and my resurrection, I'm going to give you some freedom from that. I'm going to unlock the door to that. And you can live forever. So Jesus came into the world that was full of death. And he was raised again to give us 
to unlock the key to that. Notice he said, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. This morning I came to the building early. And I had a key. And I unlocked the door. And I came in. The keys to the front door. It allowed me to come into this building. Jesus has the keys to death and hell. He can fix it. He can fix it. The sin that has brought death into the world, Jesus can fix it. He's got the key. And those that pass away from this life, when it looks like our physical life is all that we have, Jesus unlocks that key or unlocks that door to hell and death. And he lets us out of that bondage. He frees us from those handcuffs of death that we're going to experience at some point. And that's why we don't have to mourn as those that have no hope. Those that don't know what's on the other side. Those that have no idea of God. They think death is it. But you and I as children of God. We hold the key. If we're in Jesus Christ we hold the key. In Colossians chapter 2. It says buried with him in baptism. We're buried with Christ in baptism, wherein also you're risen with him through faith in the operation of God. It's not a work of man. The world will tell you, oh, this is a work of man to be baptized. The Bible says it's an operation of God. We're buried with Christ in baptism. We're risen with him through our faith in the operation of God. The operation is That God has given us the key to hell and death. He has forgiven us. He has given us eternal life. That's the operation of God. When we're obedient to his will. And it says, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. Hath he quickened together with him. Having forgiven you all trespasses. The word quickened there. Means make you alive. He makes you alive. He brings you back to God. And he forgives you of your trespasses. And so Jesus came into this world of darkness. And he lived in a land that was dark. And he experienced all the things that you and I experience in the human flesh. And even death. That he could destroy the, man, the one that had the power. That's the devil. And he gives the key. To anybody that wants it. He said, here's the key. Be buried with me in baptism. Have faith that I will make you alive and forgive your sins. If you're subject to that gospel call this morning, Jesus came to do that. He came into a dark world to bring you light. That you don't have to walk in that shadow of death anymore. You can be made alive with a key that he will give you through the gospel. If you're subject to that, we ask you to come forward this morning. If you need prayers for some cause that we can help you with to strengthen you, to help you, come as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.